This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is February 23rd, 2023. Tomorrow, February 24th, marks one year since Russian troops crossed the border and invaded Ukraine. Of course, the impact of the war in terms of lives taken and lives in upheaval is the paramount effect. This program, however, is focused on providing an understanding of what events around the world mean for markets and investors. That is where we'll spend our time today, looking at where economies and investment markets around the world, where they stand one year later. To do so, we sat down for a roundtable discussion with MSCI experts with four different perspectives to bring you as complete a picture as possible. Ashish Lode from the Equity Solutions Research Team, friend of the pod, Andy Sparks, head of Portfolio Management Research, Tom Leahy, who heads European Commercial Property Research, and Elchin Mamadov, who is the co-head of ESG and Climate Research in EMEA, and also leads the Global Utilities Sector Team. You'll hear from Ashish, Andy, Tom, and Elchin in that order. Thanks, first of all, to everyone for joining. Um, I'd like to start out, if we could, by by taking on the direct effects of the war. Now, understood from our, our previous conversations that those direct effects have lessened and investors have started to incorporate the reality of the war into their expectations, into their analysis. But as we speak today, and we're about a week out from the anniversary of the invasion right now, what impact do we see? Ashish, let's start with you. Uh, Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me. And uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, The start of last year was indeed quite shaky for equity markets across the globe. Uh, A number of factors, uh, such as fears of stagflation with rising inflation, and even a possible recession were already driving ne- negative investor sentiment even before the conflict began. And uh, from the economic point of view, what Russia-Ukraine conflict did was it worsened some of those problems, especially uh, the ones related to energy price-led inflation in Europe, at least in the short term. Uh, however, a lot has changed over the year, especially in the second half of the year, uh, the oil prices started to come down. Uh, Europe managed to secure alternative LNG supplies from the U.S. and also U.S. inflation started showing some signs of easing. Uh, As a result, what we saw was that most equity markets started to recover around the end of the third quarter of last year. So yes, one could argue that uh, the direct effects of the war have lessened. And if I focus a bit more on Europe, Uh, What was indeed surprising here was that European equities were the fastest to recover, which is contrary to to what most market analysts expected given Europe's proximity to the conflict zone and also its high reliance on Russian gas. To give you some color, uh, the MSCI Europe index in local currency finished about 2% positive over the year, while the US and emerging market indexes were down more than 7% over the year. And it seems uh, European equities benefited from slower than expected rate hikes and also lifting of COVID restrictions in China and China being a big 
market for Europe luxury goods. And uh, lastly, I think it's also important to note that uh, the performance dispersion across European country equity markets remained quite high. For example, countries like Hungary, Poland and Germany, their equity markets were the worst hit, uh, which could be owing to their geographical proximity and also due to energy dependency on Russia. And Andy, a couple of fixed income related topics uh, touched on there. What did you see from your angle? Well, the immediate response in the fixed income market after the um, after the invasion of Ukraine was definitely very swift and very large. And partly, I think the audience needs to understand that there was surging inflation even ahead of the invasion. And the invasion with the spike in energy prices made, made a bad inflation situation that much worse in addition to major impacts on countries, uh, neighboring Russia, and countries very dependent on um, energy imports from Russia, government um, yield curves shifted up a lot, and corporate spreads widened. And this negative return in bonds was occurring at the same time as the uh, trade-off in equities and other sectors. And it, it really created a terrible situation for um, folio managers. And this belief that bonds offer diversification in a times of crisis was missing. And we, we've experienced some of the uh, worst returns in, in the past 60 years for portfolios with mixed assets. Since uh, roughly Q3, the tone has improved in the fixed income market. There has been a rally. But nevertheless, if you just look at the level of yields um, now versus um, just before the onset of, of hostilities, um, yields are still much higher. And I think those higher yields are definitely tempting some investors to add allocation to fixed income. Tom, both Ashish and Andy have spoken about geographic differences for fixed income and equities. Was the same true on the real estate front? I think you have to think about the effects of the war in, in two ways. There's the direct impact and the indirect impact. So the direct impact in terms of real estate in Russia and Ukraine itself, uh, both in Ukraine has a very, very limited institutional investment market. And in Russia, there has been an institutional investment market with some US and European firms active there, but they've really, um, portfolios there are relatively small and actually most of those players are now trying to exit those portfolios. But it's really the indirect impact and much of that stems from what Andy and Shisha have already talked about. And that's caused a, a pretty sharp correction in real estate and one that is still underway really. In terms of the geographical split, obviously the proximity of Central and Eastern European markets to the war zone would suggest they might be worse affected, but the data doesn't necessarily show that, actually. In terms of the European market that has seen the sharpest correction, certainly in terms of transaction volumes, that's properties being bought and sold in 2022, that was Germany. Um, And clearly Germany's reliance on uh, energy supplies from overseas and from Russia was something of an Achilles heel. Um, And that led to a marked fall in sentiment in the German real estate market. So linked to some of the economic sentiment in Germany, but also the higher cost of debt because of higher interest rates. Um, And debt costs have really rocketed for almost all commercial real estate asset classes, which has led to huge amounts of uncertainty over pricing, 
And when you've got that uncertainty over pricing, buyer and seller expectations move apart. You know, property is a private asset. And so these kind of uh, effects take a while to feed through into the, into the market. And so we're seeing that certainly in terms of lower volumes. What about uh, Russia itself? The world has come together to impose, continue to impose even through today, heavy sanctions. What's been the effect on the markets across the board there? Let me start with the uh, with the impact uh, on the energy markets with my energy analyst hat on. Um, as you know, the prices for energy have initially um, surged and, and then they have since come down. Um, this has generated a lot of winners and losers, depending on which part of the energy value chain you are in and also what geography you are present. If you are an oil and gas company, um, most of them weren't affected negatively and actually net net the impact has been positive there were only a handful of oil and gas companies with significant um, presence in russia so the net benefit for them uh, was that the energy prices meant that they could sell their hydrocarbons for for higher price so even if they had to take some impairments on their russian investments the net impact was positive if you were a u.s uh, oil and gas company that you were only a net beneficiary um because yeah again the energy prices still remain well above their pre-crisis levels even despite the uh, recent drop the impact was more felt within european utility space which rely on russian not only gas but also coal for them again they weathered the storm relatively well because only a few of them had a exposure to russia and those who did suffered badly and the biggest sufferers were in essence clean energy and nuclear power plants so unfortunately in the short term they, they suffered the most because of this imposed windfall taxes but the sector even for utilities um, was a net beneficiary because it's considered to be a safe haven so um, a lot of money went in there, even in Europe. Probably I can add from Russian equity market index point of view. So Russia as a country is a very small part of our global equity index. It is a slightly bigger part of our emerging market index, uh, at least until till, uh, the middle of last year when it was removed. As a result of the Ukraine-Russia crisis, the impact of Russian market on the global equities the direct impact was not too big. It was slightly more meaningful in the emerging market index, but it was again soon removed. So that impact was also not long lasting. The thing that impressed me the most, Ashish, is actually European industrials. Um, the deindustrialization of Europe because of this surging input costs hasn't really happened yet. And it looks like the, the sector has weathered the storm. Yes, we are seeing some of the factories operating at well below capacity. Others have been mothballed, but it's on, on a localized scale. Adam and Russian bonds. Initially, there was some trading immediately after the um, invasion. But Western governments um, quickly began imposing sanctions and um, effectively the hard currency, um, Russian bonds are in a state of default. You can't really trade them. Russia had a lot of reserves with central banks globally, particularly U.S. dollars. Those were frozen as well. And so for a while, as um, energy prices were very high, 
Russia's oil sales continue to generate very high revenues, but um, as the price of oils come down, as caps have been imposed on them, the fiscal situation in Russia is probably going to be deteriorating. So with that foundation in place, let's look at what investors are focused on, which if I'm hearing you all correctly um, and, and reading the papers correctly, seems to be inflation, rising rates, and though it's tempered a bit in some places, talk of recession. Andy, as our resident student of the Fed, you've been on here many times to to talk about the Fed as well as other central banks around the world. Help us put some of this into context, if you could. The role played by central banks cannot be understated. And we've seen continually over the course of the past year, markets, not just the bond market, but also the equity market and other sectors, including real estate, they have been um, moving very directly with um, views around central bank actions. And so I think to get a good understanding of what could happen going forward, I think it's, it's really important to focus on inflation, economic growth, which are two key goals of central banks, and in the case of the United States, maximum employment and low and stable prices. So the question is, how effective will monetary policy be in in driving inflation lower without causing a, a, a sharp recession? I think it is worthwhile to look at this in a little bit of historical context, too. Number one, the Fed sees inflation as its responsibility, and high inflation means the Fed has fallen short. In 2021 and early 2022, the Fed continually understated inflation. And as a result, the Fed, and it's not just the Fed, it's other central banks as well, but given that inflation was a lot higher than central banks had been um, projecting, those central banks began to lose credibility in the eyes of, of quite a few market participants. So, the Fed and other central banks changed its tone. In the case of the Fed, they have raised the Fed funds rate by four and a half percent since last March. And so I would argue that the Fed has followed up its tough talk with aggressive action. So one year since the invasion of Ukraine, inflation now appears to have peaked and is declining, but the Fed is not ready to declare victory and in fact, recent messaging continues to emphasize that its job is not done and the road ahead may be bumpy. Tom, um, Andy mentioned the direct effect on, on real estate. You touched on that a bit earlier, but can you pick up the thread there? The low rate, low return environment really was the architect of the post-GFC real estate boom. So trillions of dollars were spent on global real estate really since since the recovery from the GFC started in 2010. And a lot of that capital was being pushed into property because of the real returns that the asset class could provide at a time when bond yields especially were ultra low. And so the war really seems to have signaled the end of that cycle. Um, you know, properties are a cyclical asset class as many as, as principal asset classes are, but you, you can trace property cycles going back centuries even. And this particular cycle now looks to have peaked probably in the middle of 2022, certainly in terms of its capital values among um, the global real estate. And then that leads to, again, that uncertainty around pricing, so that lower liquidity. And that's 
one of the things that makes property interesting and different from other asset classes is that it takes a long time with these real world impacts to feed through because you need to have buyers and sellers come together to create a transaction and you know property deals take months to complete they're not they don't happen instantaneously so for the liquidity to come back to the market i think we need to see some clarity on where rates are going to be especially the cost of debt uh, which rocketed above property yields in the middle of last year and but i do think if we the, there's a longer term question which is if the low rate environment was the architect of a global real estate boom but that period is now over and if rates settle down at a structurally higher level than they have been i think the question for real estate investors is where does property fit in in that landscape and i think we won't have a clearer idea of where property will fit in until we see or we get an idea of where long term rates will settle there's a lot of similarities with clean tech assets they benefited incredibly from lower for longer uh rate environment and a lot of pension funds and infrastructure funds were parking the capital in this high capital intensive projects offshore wind large onshore solar battery projects and now that the rates are going up the valuations are not as high as they were at the same time the core investors that were investing outside of financial uh bubble are utilities and a lot of those are now having to deleverage because their um interest um expense going up and one of the assets they know they can sell relatively easily is not a coal-fired plant is a is a wind farm project or a solar project or a battery one and just uh, as an aside we've seen a, a lot in the press every year the cost of wind is coming down the cost of solar is coming down now we're seeing actually that's reversing and the wind and solar costs are going up because of inflation which impacts the steel costs and everything else that goes into them but also the fact that the funding rate is going up i think it's very important to realize that inflation and interest rates they don't have a homogeneous effect on the markets and as inflation and rates evolve rapidly like they did over the past year they do tend to drive performance of certain industries and certain style factors for example in europe uh, as expected oil and gas and energy stocks rallied uh, and that was a direct consequence of the oil price increase and also the inflationary environment and inflation and global supply chain issues caused by the war also played a role in the rally of commodity focused industries uh, such as metals and mining in addition to that european banks also started trending upwards due to the rising rates uh, while on the other hand the technology sector started to underperform and it brings us to a very interesting comparison uh, since compared to the us Europe equity market is heavy in financials and energy sector companies and light in technology uh the overall impact of the rate hike was less detrimental to Europe equities compared to uh, other developed uh, global developed economies just come back cuz I, I think I was to my property um as an asset class in general but I think one of the interesting things about real estate is it's not a homogenous asset class um for example the sharpest correction in real estate pricing in the second half of last year was an industrial property which had been the most sought after asset class probably globally um especially on the back of a lot of that shift to online retailing that you saw during the pandemic which is pushing uh, warehouse occupiers like Amazon to take up huge volumes of space driving rental growth and so investors followed into that uh, and pushed yields down to very low levels but the higher rates that 
years have had to move out and that's had an outsized impact on, on property values for that sector in particular. But there are structural reasons to keep on buying industrial property if you believe that uh, people are going to keep shopping online and actually rental growth for industrial properties, according to the, the MSCI data, get through our valuation indexes has, has remained positive throughout all this capital markets disruption. So as I've talked about property in very general terms, there are lots of stories that sit beneath those headline numbers. The other part of the market um, that was also very much in favour during the pandemic was a apartment or multifamily property, as they say, in, uh, across the pond in the US. Again, there's been something of a correction after a, a post-pandemic boom in property prices. But if you believe there's a structural need for housing, that housing has become less affordable, especially if we move into a higher rate environment, getting mortgages will become more expensive. And so rental properties will be required. So there's plenty of our global investment manager clients who are trying to acquire um, residential assets. Elchin, um, you've given us great insight into the energy sector and the relation with sanctions on Russia, etc. But what about the global push toward reducing reliance on fossil fuels? What's been the impact there? I think it's kind of going to lead to a one step back, two step forward kind of things. In the short term, we are seeing increased emissions as not just in Europe, but also in Asia Pac, the countries are switching to burning more coal, more fuel oil to offset some of the shortage in gas, which was quite expensive until recently. However, in the longer term, we do expect the governments and the companies trying to reduce the price volatility and also improve the energy security. And the easiest way to do that is to accelerate investment in renewables. There are uh, pro-climate subsidies. Um, we've seen the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. We've seen Repower EU in, more recently, EU Green Deal Industrial Plan. We are seeing countries in China tackling overdue subsidy payments that are owned to clean tech companies. We are seeing Japan and Korea reversing their nuclear phase-out plans and other countries seeking to follow suit. So there is a really huge momentum in favor of clean tech, despite the headwinds that I've expressed earlier due to the high inflation rate. And of course, the question always on investors' mind is what happens next? Andy, um, I'll look to you again first. You and your team, you've done some scenario analysis on this very question. Can you walk us through what you found? Yeah, sure. And The background is that we are living in uncertain times. And as we've um, discussed a little earlier in this discussion, the um, inflation is um, top of the mind for investors. We're still coming out of the pandemic. There were major changes in the labor force um, resulting from the pandemic. Labor force participation rates, for instance, in the U.S., um, went down very noticeably. Then we had the Ukraine war, and we now have just received the um, inflation for the United States for January, unexpectedly a bit on the high side. If you just annualize the past um, two month inflation rates for core inflation in the U.S., it's it's annualizing at about a 4.8% rate versus central bank goals of 2%. 
versus the Fed's goal of 2%. And in current market pricing, the market is expecting a much lower inflation rate than what we're seeing. So in our analysis, we look at four different scenarios. We called one baseline, another hard landing, another mild stagflation, another strong rebound. In our baseline scenario, we expected elevated interest rates and volatile markets, mainly due to the ambiguity around growth and monetary policy. In this scenario, a portfolio of global equities in U.S. bonds could gain approximately 3%. In less favorable scenarios, such as a hard landing or stagflation, our analysis showed the same portfolio could experience a loss of, in the case of the hard landing, um, 0.5%, and in the case of stagflation, 7%. In this sort of environment, we see lots of investors who aren't exactly sure of what might happen, and they actually like looking at different possibilities. And so MSCI is not assigning probabilities to these different scenarios, but we are using our tools to look at how markets might respond if a specific scenario were realized. And Ashish, I know you had mentioned some thoughts around this earlier. So I cannot uh, really speak about the possible scenarios. What I can tell is basically that considering the current environment and assuming that the current conditions prevail, uh, we have done some analysis from equity factors point of view and our findings indicate that in such economic conditions, historically speaking, investors might still prefer to have test to factors like value, quality, and minimum volatility. When we are speaking to the clients, especially long horizon factor clients, they are viewing current macro environment as a regime change compared to what we have seen over the past few years where value factor has suffered for years at the expense of high risk growth stocks. And a lot more clients today are considering allocating to factors. The recent events, especially the market dips that happened in the past years, They have also shed light on the importance of managing portfolio risk and drawdowns, and they have highlighted the role that low-risk strategies such as minimum pool can play in equity allocations. And recent events have once again highlighted the importance of global diversification, especially when we look at the regional performance of various equity indexes. It becomes very clear very quickly that it's not easy to uh, predict the market movements in short term. And in such a case, diversification can help us reduce the specific risk coming from a single bet. Well, thank you all for a a great discussion. I I know investors will find these insights very valuable as they start to look forward more for the year. So thank you again for joining us. That's all for this week. A big thank you from Joe, Phil, and me to Ashish, Andy, Tom, and Elgin, and to all of you for listening. On our next episode, It's MSCI's annual look at the progress that women have made obtaining seats on corporate boards as well as other positions of power at companies around the world. We'll examine where we are and why investors are paying such close attention. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.